My name is Kion Wolf, and I'm 39 years old. Welcome back to 25 for 25. This is a show where I speak to 25 people about what their lives were like when they were 25. I'm your host and resident 25-year-old, Panina Beattie. If you live in Connecticut, chances are pretty high that you know Kion Wolf's voice. I talked to a guy, a, a guy that some other guy told me about. He's a Navy analyst, and he doesn't want us to use his name. The Navy has no official record of Cap'n Crunch doing anything for them. So he doesn't... Hey, is there anybody I can talk to for this story who isn't eating cereal all the time? In addition to being the sound engineer and daytime announcer for Connecticut Public Radio, she hosts two podcasts of her own, a storytelling show called The Mouth Off and an advice show called What's Your Problem, both recorded live in Hartford. She has a million other projects that I could mention, but it would probably take up the entirety of the podcast to describe all of them. By far my favorite thing she does, though, is a weekly live stream on Facebook and Instagram every Sunday afternoon called It's Chopped Salad Time. She prepares salads for the week and talks about life and is just her charming self. It's delightful. You should definitely check it out. When Kion was 25, long before she was a familiar voice in Connecticut, Kion was working at T-Mobile at West Farms Mall in Farmington, Connecticut. We talked about how people treat you when you're precocious and young people slang, but we spent most of the time talking about death. It was hilarious. Here's Kion Wolf on 25. When and where were you? And when I was 25? Yeah. <laughs> oh, the whole point of this thing? Right, yes. <laughs> that is funny. Yeah, a lot of times when I'm interviewing people, they're, they're like, do you mean when I was 25? I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, can we swear? Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> this isn't sponsored by anyone. Oh, good. Yet. <laughs> That's my life. Yeah. <laughs> um, when I was 25, I was living in Plainville, Connecticut, which is, if you if you look at me, it's it's so accurate. <laughs> Yeah, no, you're the you're very very plain. plain. <laughs> I've got I've got arms full of tattoos, and at the time I had long dreadlocks, and I was living in Plainville, Connecticut. After, so I was in Hartford for a while, and this house I was living in, one morning they knocked on the door, and they had uh, basically a letter saying that here's your 30 day notice, you have to move out, we're selling this house, and I was just about to leave for a two week vacation to San Francisco, so I had two weeks to find a new apartment. My parents, uh, bless their hearts, went driving around as I was in San Francisco trying to find an apartment for me. And they found one in Plainville, which is right next to them, mm-hmm. Nice across the street from a fire department and down the street from two churches and a police department. <laughs> so that was my apartment for nine years in Plainville, Connecticut. Oh. And you had just moved there? Uh, no, I'd been there maybe a couple of years. Okay. Yeah. And so are you are you from Connecticut originally? Yeah, I'm from Farmington, which is about 20 minutes west of Hartford. And I was lucky enough to be born in Hartford. And I'm hoping to die in Hartford. <laughs> Not anytime soon. What were you doing for work? Were you at WNPR already? No, mm-hmm. I was I was just a couple of years before my public radio life started. Uh, I was working for T-Mobile. I was selling cell phones in a mall. Uh, West I, Farms? Yeah, in oh, West Farms Mall. Nice. What's crazy about that is... The location that I was in at T-Mobile 
It's the same location. It used to be the coffee beanery in West Farms Mall. Okay. And before that, it was like a holiday store. Anyway, I was in this one room for like 15 years. Oh, man. Just in different stores. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I was selling cell phones. I loved it. I was learning sign language. We had a lot of deaf and hard of hearing uh, employees. We T-Mobile used to have the T-Mobile sidekick. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. Used to flip open. And... uh, Two of my coworkers knew sign language because people in their family, and I'd always wanted to learn, so I started learning sign language. I became very fluent in sign language that had to do with cell phones, <laughs> and I become very fluent in Spanish, only if I had to talk about cell phones. Mm, yeah. And I get out of there, and it was all it was all gone. But <laughs> it was a good place to work. I made a ton of money. Oh, I made so much money. This is funny. Before, when I switched over to to working with public radio, which mm-hmm. is a whole different story. Mm-hmm. And they they made a job offer. My boss-to-be um, said, we can offer you 35, and we can't go any higher than that. I'm sorry. Now, I was coming from retail sales, where all I ever think about is per hour. Mm-hmm. So when he said that they were going to offer, offer me 35 for this public radio job, I was like, my heart went into my throat. I was like, my life's going to change. Yeah. Why do my coworkers always pitch about not having any money? <laughs> and so I put in my two weeks at T-Mobile where mm-hmm. I was making $60,000 a year. Mm-hmm. And I got my offer letter from public radio. And it was $35,000 a year. So I learned that lesson mm. the hard way. <laughs> learned so much at T-Mobile and in this life. So how did you make it into WNPR or the radio world? Yeah, I uh, was driving around one day and listening to public radio, as I always have in my whole life. And they needed people to answer phones for the fun drive. There was like a little little announcement. And I thought that would be really cool. And I'd never volunteered for anything in my life. Mm-hmm. And you work with phones. So. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know I never put that together? <laughs> Thanks, Penny. Oh, uh, yeah, that's why I'm here. <laughs> Uh, so I went and my best friend went with me and, you know, we, we, as we mentioned, we are tattooed and we look very distinct and we end up in this pretty cool (laughs) and we end up in this call center room in this building with a bunch of ladies with silver and white hair. Mm -hmm. So we stuck out, um, John Dankowski later told me that he came to say hi because he just had to know what was going on. Like, who (laughs) are these people? And so he comes in and he says, hey, everybody, I wanted to thank you for volunteering. We really appreciate it. And as soon as I heard his voice, I knew exactly who he was. Mm -hmm. He's a news director of Connecticut Public Radio and the host of Where We Live. So I started like machine gunning questions at him. Like, (laughs) how do you become a a public radio news director? What does a news director do? do How do you become a host of the show? Do you come up with the ideas for the show? Do other people come up with it? Like, and I was completely on fire about this. And uh, he later gave me a tour of the newsroom and then gave me uh, an offer to join their internship program. And that is how it all started. So did you, what kind of internship did you do? <laughs> this is before we had high standards for <laughs> interns <laughs> or paying. They also didn't pay us then. But uh, my job was to, before Where We Live, our morning show, go down and get this, sit with the guests. Like, just sit with the guests and... <laughs> For how long? Uh, 15 minutes. We'd go down 15 minutes before showtime, and, and if they had any questions. Uh-huh. Um, and after you a little, didn't know the answer to them. <laughs> that's exactly right, because I was an intern. Right. <laughs> and so uh, finally I told my the people in charge, like, you know, I think some people before a show they're nervous or they just need some time to prepare. 
I think maybe it'd be better if I just went down there and brought them up. Mm-hmm. And so that that tradition began. Yeah, you changed it all. <laughs> I changed for, everything. For, well, I thank you for that. You're welcome. Uh, for my God, experience. All, and I'm like pretty charming, but there are a lot of people. And I wasn't in the mood. It's like 8.45 in the morning. I'm not in the mood to be schmoozy and charming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know you're probably not either. So let's just do this thing. <laughs> but yeah, getting them water. The first day of my internship where we live had our um, uh, lieutenant governor on the show, mm-hmm. Sullivan. And I was in a long distance relationship and I had one of those Canon point and shoot cameras because that's how we'd share our experiences on Flickr. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, <laughs> this nice. Flickr, I know. Uh, and so I had this Canon point and shoot and this light bulb went off. I noticed on the back end of the website, you could upload a picture along with a web page for the show. And I thought, well, maybe I can take a picture of our guests because I'm desperate at this point for this internship to lead to something. I didn't want this radio station to be able to let go of me. Mm -hmm. So I needed them to need me. And it occurred to me, wow, our visual reporting could be as strong as our audio reporting. So I started investing in cameras and finding mentors and learning as fast as I could about photojournalism. And it seems like a crazy thing to say I'm a photographer for the radio, but it was 2007 and it was just really beginning to go that way. And Mm -hmm. so for a long time, I thought that my future in public radio was to create and kick ass as a photojournalist. So now you're you're doing the board for the most part. (laughs) How did you get there? (laughs) I am. Running a board is really fun and cool and you can be creative. And if you're really, really good at it, nobody thinks about you. (laughs) <laughs> because you you make sure that, like, technically the, the theme song launches and lands at the right time, that the clips they call for are the right clips at the right volume and triggered at the right time, that the music is appropriate for the show, and I'm in charge of all the music here, too. Mm-hmm. So, I like, I love it. And <laughs> at the same time, it's very <laughs> – I feel very creatively stifled. I've been saying everybody else's words at this radio station for 12 years, but yeah. – uh, we're we're trying to develop something. There's some plans in the works. It's just still all up in the air, so I can't get excited yet. Mm-hmm, but yeah. in the meantime, I'll just keep making my own stuff. Yeah, stay tuned. Yeah, thanks. That sounds awesome. So you were listening to NPR your whole life. You grew up with that. Um, I, I too, have, have grown up with it. Uh, somebody described it as uh, Stockholm Syndrome, um, LAUGHTER <laughs> Uh, which I'm okay with. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it led to this, to this, so I'm happy about it. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like your peers were, how did they feel about you loving NPR and then starting to work there? They were totally supportive. In fact, one my earliest memory of holding a mic and interviewing somebody was I just started this internship and I'm sort of um, you know, spending half my day here at the radio station and the other half at the cell phone store. And they had modified my schedule so I could just close every night. And I forget what the thing was that I interviewed them about, but I took a kit, an audio kit, from work at the station to my work at the cell phone store and was interviewing some of my coworkers in the back room. And someone took a picture of me doing it, too. And it was the first time that they looked at me differently. They looked at me like I knew what I was doing. Mm. And so I felt like I had to live up to that, you know? Um, so they were totally supportive. They totally got it. And, you know, I was talking about NPR all the time anyway. So it was, <laughs> it was a really good fit. And they were great friends. What were you were telling me about, like, firing questions at uh, uh, John. John. Yeah, John Dukowski. <laughs> I almost called him Steve Inscape. <laughs> well. They're all, yeah. Um, <laughs> old, older, older white dudes on radio. <laughs> yes, yes. Luckily, they're, I like them. So yes, that's that, good. Who, yeah. Whom we like. Yes, whom we like. Um, <laughs> but did you ever kind of get feedback from from older people or from your peers that you were like 
precocious mm. and not necessarily in a nice way? <laughs> oh, yes. Well, it really started coming across when Colin McEnroe started his show. So Colin was on this AM radio station in Connecticut for 16 years, and he was like the liberal anti-Rush Limbaugh. Mm. And his job was to be sort of the liberal anti-Rush Limbaugh. But they laid a whole bunch of people off, including him. And he started a show at Connecticut Public. And he'd been listening to our station. He'd been listening to me at the time I'd been doing the breaks on Saturday nights, telling you what show is coming up next, you know, what time it is. Support for Connecticut Public Radio comes from, mm, Wow, that sounds familiar. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so he'd heard my voice. And I he, he got in touch with me. And he said, I'm starting this new show with your station. I want your voice to be the first and last thing that everybody hears, which was amazing. A huge opportunity. I said yes immediately, and I still didn't even really know who he was because I don't listen to AM radio. I listen right. to NPR. <laughs> and the thing about his show is that they all start with these little skits that relate to the topic we're going to be talking about for the hour. And he writes the skits. He sends them to me every day around 10 or 11 o'clock. And then I've got all this time to record my vocal tracks. If there's someone else in the skit, which there usually is, they record each line three times. <laughs> so I pick, I edit them. I pick out the ambi, any sound effects. We have a really good sound effect library at this station now. Um, and <laughs> I used to, we, his producers used to have access to his email, his Colin at WNPR.org email. And so often people would write in, <laughs> To say that they love him, but this Kion Wolf person is not very funny. Because, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, everyone thinks, a lot of people think that you write those skits. Yeah, which is how good he is. Yeah. And he's been that good from the start. There's just, he knows, it's weird we didn't even know each other, but he has this great sense about what people's strengths are, mm -hmm. which lends to how great his show is. But because when people would complain about it, and also in the credits, I, I often make fun of him and call him names in different ways. Yeah. And there was one email somebody was like, you know, I think it's pretty offensive and rude that she would, you know, talk smack about her boss on the air. And he'd, he'd write them back nicely and say, well, mm -hmm. that was my writing, so everything's okay. Um, but, yeah, there was definitely um, – I started developing a pretty thick skin. And there's really only one way to do it, which is, you know, the only way out is through. Mm -hmm. And it, there was a lot that really hurt that just because it's your voice. Yeah. What are you? Your voice is your body. Your voice mm -hmm. is your mind, your, your culture. Mm -hmm. And so when someone doesn't like your voice or what you're saying, like, you, <laughs> it's hard to just get over that. And especially as women, we're, we're more likely to be targets of this criticism than men. And mm -hmm. so it's these are things that. Definitely, I still work through. I'm 12 years in. I'm much better at you know taking it and saying at least I'm doing something in order for you to react this way. But at the same time, most people have been so freaking awesome. Most people have been complimentary and supportive and consistently. Mm -hmm. So every now and then, it's it's kind of the price you pay, unfortunately. You have a lot of irons in the fire. I do. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> um. What were you that were you always did you always have that many projects? No, no. In fact, someone, uh, a friend of mine once said that Kyone acts busier than she is. And that was true. <laughs> it is no longer true. <laughs> I act precisely as busy as I am. 
Uh, but no, I used to just not have much to do. Mm-hmm. I, you know, had some friends. I had a great cat, really wonderful cat. His name mm-hmm. was Momo. He had a little nub for a tail. Um, he was very dog-like, so I spent a lot of time with my cat and some good friends. But otherwise, no, didn't didn't do too much. Did that was that okay with you at the time? Yeah, in my mid twenties, that was just fine. At the same time, I was also really frustrated with like not knowing not knowing what was in front of me. I didn't know what I was doing with myself, working in cell phones in a mall with a retail schedule where I couldn't commit to things because that's how retail schedules right. go yeah. and feeling like I had so much to offer but what where do I put it yeah were you thinking about the future in terms of career relationships life well I definitely wanted to find someone I've always uh I know I'm not alone in in craving and really appreciating touch and affection and feeling prioritized and uh, someone attracted to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm also a queer woman. And so there was some challenge to that. I I have really high standards. I think we, <laughs> I think we all do. And should. And should. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's just a matter of how you view those things. And I think my priorities at the time were also, um, you know, when, with Disney, you're raised on Disney in the United States. And so you're, you've got this idea that when you meet that person, it's supposed to be fireworks right away. You read each other's minds. You're my soulmate. It's like I've known you my whole life. And don't get me wrong, that happens. And it works for some people. But all the times that I had that experience, they, those really were true. It didn't last. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, something I was sure of over and over again wasn't reliable. And it wasn't till much later, much later in my life, where I realized that even though that is one way it can and does go, that's not the only way to get there. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm sure that there were some people in my life that I maybe didn't give a chance because I didn't have that initial holy shit feeling, mm-hmm. you know. But I definitely wanted to find someone. I wanted to find a career that made me really excited to be alive and to go in, which I think everybody does. Um, and in terms of living, my three big brothers had, I have a brother, he was in Kyoto, another brother in Madrid, another in Los Angeles. And I wanted to fly too. Like I wanted to go play in this world too. And so I kind of felt like I was on the verge Mm -hmm. always of going somewhere because Connecticut's not exactly. Really? It's not comparable to San Francisco? (laughs) I'm shocked. I know. I know. But yeah, Connecticut, I just didn't think I'd stay here. Yeah. But. Yeah, it is interesting that you're going to say that, like, your brothers are all in different places and you are still here, but you're big fish. Committed. Yeah. Big fish amongst big fish. Mm-hmm. And over there, like, if I went to San Francisco or Los Angeles or New York, it's just big whales and big whales mm-hmm. in, in a big pond. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the cool things about this area and in Hartford is that it's too small for anybody to be an asshole. I mean, you can, but you're <laughs> going to suffer the consequences. You won't be able to really work with everybody. And in this city, you're going to be working with the same people. Everybody in this city wears multiple hats and helps mm-hmm. each other. And it has this underdog spirit, which is, I think, even the the knowledge that it has an underdog spirit is sort of an underdog uh, existence for it. <laughs> um, but you, it really has formed me into this person who is more accountable for what I'm doing. It's too small a city not to. Mm-hmm. So. Who were your friends? In tw- at, at 25? 25. I, I always had a lot of good friends. I've, yeah. had, it's, I've, I've never um, 
felt lonely in that sense, only romantically lonely. But thankfully, uh, I've developed and held on to some really great friendships. And the kind of people I'm typically friends with are the kinds that are low maintenance. Uh, so we could not see each other for years and it's just pick right up. So mm -hmm. and those are just the kind of people that I'm drawn to. There's a certain amount of um, self-confidence a lot of my friends have and compassion and understanding. So I think I was just drawn to really, really good people for the most part. And so it's people outside my work. And because you <laughs> you work with the same people all the time, you definitely start developing some strong bonds. So the people at T-Mobile at were, were a strong network of friends for me and the people around us. Uh, in a mall, as you can imagine, there's <laughs> you cross a lot of people's mm -hmm. paths. Uh, my friend Eileen worked at Lord and Taylor, and uh, she's very beautiful. And so she would come down into the store, and every time she came down, I would just turn bright red. And she loved it. <laughs> I would love it too if I turned someone bright red every time. <laughs> and she's still uh, one of my dearest friends. So, what was your relationship with uh, spirituality hmm. and religion? I think I was just approaching atheism when I was 25. I grew up in Connecticut, uh, Roman Catholic, and got confirmed in the Catholic Church as a deal that my mom made. She said, listen, get confirmed, go through that thing, and then you can decide whether or not you keep going to church, which was a great deal for me because <laughs> I didn't buy any of it. But, you know, when you're, when you're raised thinking that God is of course, God. <laughs> of course, there's a God. Uh, it, it took me a while to work my way through that. And so I think that I also used to hold on to the idea that um, not that things happen for a reason, but that there was some sort of fatedness, that I had some sort of a great fate ahead of me, um, which I no longer believe. So at 25, I was still comfortable with the idea of believing in God, but also very close to letting go of that. And when I did let go of that, I felt deeply relieved, deeply relieved, mm. and still am. What do you mean by relieved? You know, I had mentioned earlier that I had a cat named Momo, and he was my best friend, mm. which is offensive to my actual best friends, but you know what I mean. So. When Momo died, he'd been sick for a while, and um, when he died, I had the thought that many people have when someone you love who is sick, who you were looking after, dies. Did I take good enough care of him? Could I have done it better? Would he have lived longer? And when he died and I started thinking those thoughts, I thought, well, that's useless. <laughs> it makes sense that I think those thoughts. I'm a human with a heart. I loved him, but that's useless. He's gone. I believe he's gone. <laughs> or, you know, he's either gone poof or he's somewhere else. Mm. And um, there was a relief in feeling that way. Not only that my accountability, which I value, in living times, but that might, it, it's just not working that way anymore. And so if you don't believe in God, then there's certain things that you can let go of. The fear that you didn't do enough, the fear that they're still watching you, the fear that you'll be judged in, in a way that might not be fair. Because things that you did a long time ago that you thought you were righteous to do, 
later on you might realize, wow, I really was a selfish asshole. <laughs> and so at what point is who judging me for realizing that? Mm-hmm. And so letting go not only of the idea of of God and of the, you know, heaven or hell afterlife, it seemed like, oh, now I can be more me. Now I can be accountable to me, not to anybody else mm. ever. So I was going to ask you, your relationship to mortality, uh, it seems like that was kind of on the mind, at least in terms of your cat. What about your own <laughs> mortality, I guess? I've been interested in death for my whole life. My idea of death, I, I think, you know, subscribing to the idea of an afterlife and being judged um, is just what you're programmed with. And I started developing this idea that either we go poof, and that is it, because we are just hormones and atoms and neurons and gut bacteria or whatever. Or we all go to the heaven we think we're going to. That would be interesting because there's been so many, uh, or afterlives more accurately. One idea that really started appealing to me in my 20s was the idea that after we die, if our consciousness or soul, for lack of a better term, survives the demise of our body, and goes on to evolve as all living things do or want to, then who's to say that the planet Earth is the only realm for that evolution? We know that there are plenty of planets and even (laughs) beyond our understanding, there's plenty of places for a body to evolve and a mind to evolve. And so who's to say that we don't go on to the next planet and then some other dimension or some other series of planets and who's to say I'm one soul when maybe at 25 I was 13 souls and now I'm 57 there have been 60 billion souls that have come through this planet as far as we can tell rough estimate where were they before and where are they now I I mean obviously we I don't don't answer that <laughs> I don't want to know Panina <laughs> <laughs> and I know you know but I I'm so intrigued. I've just with been waiting for someone to ask me. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't let anyone hear it because if you find out, then what's the point? What's the point? But that's that, and that's and that's the other thing is that like I love not knowing this. I love thinking about mm-hmm. it because it says a lot about you, what you believe, um, and at the same time, we won't be able to re- report back. You know, I just everything about that is so fascinating, and it's. A little weird because now I'm 39 and I still have not experienced a sudden traumatic or deep loss. Mm -hmm. Everybody who I've ever really loved and been close to is still alive. That's crazy. And so part of me is really glad that in, you know, these 40 years I've not been had to deal with it. And then another part of me, the bigger part of me is like, oh, shit. When it happens, I even though I think I've been thinking about this my whole life, I've been reading books, I love talking and thinking about green burials and home funerals. There's so much going on right now in the death industry. And even using the word death, people are using it more because God forbid you say the word death because it'll bring it upon you or something. Instead, you say passed away or moved on. So I feel like there's a lot of excitement. And, and I, I, I worry that even with all this thinking about it, nothing will prepare me for this shift that it will inevitably come mm. with dealing with this loss that, as long as I live, will happen. I, I, that's how you feel now? 
Yeah, and I think that that started in my mid twenties. Mm-hmm. Sort sort of that shift from, oh, there's going to be an afterlife, and I better shape up because mm-hmm. I want to look good on the spreadsheet. <sighs> yeah. Uh, to more questioning and more questioning, <laughs> my belief system. <laughs> I never thought about spreadsheets uh, giving you a, an existential crisis. But. Well, <laughs> you're welcome. Right. I guess that as my life goes on and come into more professional atmospheres, I, I can I can believe that that would happen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that kind of uh, outlook is actually, I don't know, you're saying like n- nothing will prepare me. And, you know, I don't know what, how that, how I'm going to react to that experience. But it kind of sounds like, you know, like the best parents are the ones that are worried that they're going to be bad parents. Totally. Yeah. That I hope I hope you're right. I hope that that's predictive in Me some too. way, <laughs> you know, like and I've also really watched people who've mm-hmm. been through traumatic sudden losses. A friend of ours, uh, her boyfriend had done heroin a bazillion years ago, but said he gave it up and he got a bad batch and died. And. It was hard to fathom what that was like for her. And and another friend, her, her mom died as of an accidental overdose of patches, like um, painkiller patches. I mm. guess she had forgotten she'd put one on or something. They, and I remember watching my friend whose mother died suddenly. It took her two weeks before she smiled, before I noticed she smiled. And I put it in my head, okay. When I go through this, it's okay to smile at two weeks because it was cool that she smiled at two weeks. And if she smiled at a week, it still would have been cool. And if she smiled two days later at the funeral, that still would have been cool. And so I watch the people around me who've gone through the hard things and the books I read and the podcasts I listen to. And there's even a death doula, Alua Arthur, going with Grace is her Facebook page and Instagram. And she's so amazing. So look her up. But I'm I'm reading and I'm watching and I'm hoping that that does prepare in the way that you're suggesting. But um, I guess we'll find out because I don't fucking know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's generally my personally my outlook. Whenever I feel really anxious about something in the future, I'm like, well, that maybe that means that I'll I'll do well or I'll do better because I'm like so you know <laughs> <laughs> slippery slope there, Panina. Well, yeah, <laughs> but I feel no, you. I, I I think that's just I that's the only thing I curb when I'm like, okay. Now's the time to go to sleep. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know what I do to deal with anxiety? It's mm. funny you say that because at night is when it happens for me. Yeah. You put your head down on the pillow and it's just you. Mm-hmm. And you think about all the things you screwed up and you shouldn't have said or you should have said a different way. And your life and your future and uh, everything. And sometimes I can reverse it. By reminding myself that if I'm going to spend like 15 minutes thinking about how I screwed up or being anxious about something that's about to happen, I'm going to flip it. Imagine that I said it right. Imagine that things will go okay. Like mm. fair's fair. 15 minutes for on the other side then. Mm. And then I fall asleep about a minute later. Huh. <laughs> so I don't get the full benefit of actually like imagining vividly the good things and yeah. <laughs> spend much more time with the bad things. But mm. it helps because fair is fair. Yeah. Neurons are neurons. Let's feed them both. How do you feel about uh, 25-year-olds today? I'm excited about 25-year-olds today. I um, So the woman I'm dating is 10 years younger than me. Mm-hmm. And so she's 29. And thanks to her and her friend group, I'm seeing a lot more of this younger culture. Even some of the things I love so much about 
25 year olds right now is the language that they use. I think memes are so they're funny, but they're also a way of expressing something that I didn't have. Mm -hmm. Even I used to when when Emily and I started dating, (laughs) she wrote back same about something and I didn't understand same. So to me, same was the same as ditto. And I think ditto is shit. Like, what the hell is ditto? Use your words. Ditto's coming back. No. <laughs> well, well, I like ditto. Same. Well, <laughs> but I didn't understand same, and same has a sort of I interpret it as a sort of tongue in cheek, mm-hmm. um, almost like it knows that it's a ditto. Whereas ditto mm-hmm. doesn't know it's a ditto, but mm-hmm. same knows it's ditto. And so this is a very meme conversation. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> Got him. <laughs> Got him. <laughs> Is that what you meant when you said gotcha? (laughs) Got them. Um, But I I really, I just, I think, I think the language that is being used by a lot of 25 year olds, uh, it's, it's a way of expressing yourself that I didn't have and a sort of really cool humor that is just, it wraps up this, this mid twenties generation so well. Mm. So I think it's, it's, it's cool. It took me a little long, a uh, little while to understand it, but now it's. I just really appreciate all the, the humor and the wit and and uh, character that mm-hmm. is that age group right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you use it well. I mean, Thank you. you you use Instagram better than most twenty five year olds. So. Thank you. That, <laughs> I, that means a lot coming from you. Very much. Thank you. <laughs> um. <laughs> Thank you, AF. No, that wasn't right. <laughs> I'm working on it. Yeah. All right. I'm still growing. Yeah. No, it was great. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say about the meme culture because, you know, after after 2016, uh, a lot of people were like, well, you know, like the music's going to get really good. Like the punk scene got really good under Bush. And like, you know, there's going to be a lot of really great art in response to this, which I was like, bullshit. But... <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, hopefully, you know, whatever. But um, I think the best, like, art or whatever you want to call it that has come out of, like, this presidency is the memes. Yeah. (laughs) Truly. And there's no way to really see that coming. No. You know? No. They're all made by 12-year-olds, though. (laughs) I truly I think the best memes are... Yeah, they're all 12-year-olds. The best memes are created by those who will be living longest in the planet we're destroying. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. That mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense. Yes. That's their. That's the only power that they have. Yeah. And, Sorry about uh, that. <laughs> yeah. Same. Same. I <laughs> uh, didn't mean to do that throwback, but it did. worked. Yeah, no, I think I you think... did. I think somewhere in you, you did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ditto. Uh, <laughs> you can have that one for free. I'm. Yeah, I'm going to take it. Yeah. All right, so... 39-year-old Kion Wolf sees 25-year-old Kion Wolf. When she sees you, what are, what are her thoughts? What, are, what do you think she would say? The 25-year-old self would say to me at 39, holy shit, are you kidding me? How did you do that? You get to do what and what and what? Because I do a lot of things, mm-hmm. a lot of really different things that I think are really cool. Like I run an advice show in an underground theater every month, mm-hmm. which came about after the 2016 election. I would tell, well, I, maybe maybe I wouldn't tell myself about the 2016 elections. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll um, get there. We'll yeah, get no, there, right, yeah. sure, sure. <laughs> I think so. I think my 25 year old self would be over the moon 
over the fucking moon about where I am right now mm-hmm. and very impressed. And at the same time, in a way, not surprised because what I do now really suits who I've always been. Mm-hmm. She would rapid fire ask you all these questions, <laughs> just like just like <laughs> right. John Dankowski. That's right. She would. That's true. Yeah. And then what would you say in return, of course? I would say get on a bike. <laughs> I love riding a bike. Uh, part of one of the things I do is I, I run a, a, a pre-Eversource Hartford Marathon charity bike ride. Uh, and it was after getting hit by a car. And, mm-hmm. and um, But that not only did that does that bring me deep meaning and fun and physical exercise, but it's also how I met uh, the woman who will be my wife. And so, um, of course, I wouldn't want to change anything because everything worked out to, to a life that I find so fulfilling. And it's impossible to, of course, compare it to any alternate universes where maybe if I got on the bike earlier, maybe I would have gone here or moved here or got, gotten hit by a bus, which is likely considering the way that they build roads is not <laughs> keeping cyclists in mind. But um, I would say get on a bike. Your physical, your physical health is everything, everything, everything. And I really want to live a long time in a good, strong body. I would also tell myself that it's not important to be thin. It's important to be strong. Mm -hmm. I wish I had known that as a kid. That's just a different mindset. I never thought of it um, before. So I would tell myself to to get strong as fast as I can. And, uh, and just keep being kind. I know that I was I was on the right track. My personality is still the same, mm. um, but also maybe have a little more faith in myself because mm. it won't be in God. Because <laughs> <laughs> it won't be in God. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> was there any type of movie, book, music, all three that you were listening to that were really, um, really formed you at age 25? When I think about being formed, I think about the music that I listened to, like, as a young kid, mm-hmm. you know, listen to Zeppelin. I listen to a lot of, like, 50s and 60s, like, hits of the 50s and 60s. <laughs> Serious, and today, no. <laughs> Serious XM, if it was... Uh... <laughs> if it was, right. Uh and, and when I was a teenager, I listened to a lot of Tori Amos and Ani DeFranco and Pearl Jam. Mm-hmm. Yo, Pearl Jam came out with their first album, 10, when I was like 13 years old, which is mwah, perfect. <laughs> but I have a hard time thinking about feeling formed by, uh, by, anything, by any sort of entertainment in my mid-20s. But I do remember vividly listening over and over again to Blind Pilot which is this band out of, I think, Portland, Oregon. And they just, they, there was just something about their harmonies that seemed really simple, but just uh, just lit me up. And I used to listen to them all the time. So check out some old Blind Pilot. It's beautiful, beautiful music. Kion Wolf, thank you for being on the show. I really Thanks. appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. We did it. We did it. Jojo, yeah, I know your name. Thought I saw you jump a Utah train. Hey, Jojo, yeah, I know your name. 
Thanks for listening to 25 for 25. Our theme music was written and performed by Tom McCauley and Brandon Stradling with help from Little Machine. Our logo was designed by Woozy Kurtz. I'm your host, Panina Beattie. Mornings will be the loudest you hear.